You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Go to Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 3 today. And um, we'll get you out of here so you can get all your prep going for the game today. I hear there's a game. Um, and speaking of football, we all, you know, like to debate who the GOAT is. And um, Kim, I know what you think. I know, I know your opinion as a New Englander is... Tom Brady. Um, I know most of our sons, uh, our children collectively, would say Patrick Mahomes. Um, and some of y'all degenerate people would say Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm actually right there with you. I'm a Swifty. I'm rooting for her tonight. Um, she's the GOAT. She just is. You can argue it all you want, but she's the GOAT. And as we, as we like to debate about who the greatest of all time is... Uh, Hebrews really, really capitalizes on that theme. And Hebrews, uh, more than any other book in the Bible, uses this Greek word that means greater, better, superior, uh, to describe Jesus. And so throughout the whole letter, the author of Hebrews is systematically going through um, things in, in the Old Testament that, that could, if, if misinterpreted, derail people's faith and, and caused them to miss the mark of, of worshiping King Jesus. And so he's going through the uh, first couple of chapters, he focuses on the angels, and he, and he aims to, to show how Jesus is greater than the angels. And then when we get to chapter 3, which is where we're starting today, chapter 3, verse 1, you're going to see a little bit of a shift, and he's going to begin to focus on how Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, for us, I know that's probably not a huge deal, um, but for a Jewish person in the first century to claim that Jesus was greater than Moses was a pretty audacious claim. It was, it was like claiming that Usher is greater than Taylor Swift. It, it was something that would have invoked a lot of emotion from people. They would have, what are you talking about, right? And, um, and, and so, especially for people who hadn't even heard of Jesus Christ. And so, you're going to see in these six verses that the cooks read, you're going to see how the author of Hebrews um, builds up Moses in, in faith and respect and honors him. But, but also elevates Jesus Christ as the redeeming Savior of mankind. And it's important that we continue on this journey through Hebrews and see this. Now, um, so Moses is going to get dethroned today. Um, some stats of Moses, if you don't know anything about Moses. He's, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're, you're eyeball deep in, in the law of Moses. And maybe you don't like him for that reason. But, um, but Moses wrote the first five books called the Pentateuch um, of Scripture. He met face to face with God. He was a mediator between the people of God and God himself. He led the people out of slavery um, in Egypt. They're, they're pretty good stats this man has. But, it, but he's, it's, he's clearly not perfect. He murdered a man in Egypt. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. And any of you that know any Old Testament history know about uh, the greatness of Moses, but also the failures of Moses. And really all throughout the Bible, we see men and women who are used greatly by God that are, that are imperfect, that have flaws and failures and sin because the message of the Bible is that we worship not any man, we don't have allegiance to any man, but we worship Jesus Christ alone, the sinless God-man. And so here Hebrews makes this argument beautifully that Moses is to be revered and honored and respected, but ultimately Jesus is greater. Uh, I have three points today. Jesus' role in the family, 
of God, Moses' role in that family, and then I'll close by showing you your role in that family. Now, um, first, Jesus' role in the family. Last week, remember, we talked about Jesus and how he is called, in Hebrews, our spiritual brother. Most of the time, we don't think of Jesus like this. We think of him um, as we should, this, this high and elevated um, and worshiped Savior. But what I love about that is he is all of those things, but the Bible also makes it clear that he uh, loves us. He spends time with us personally. He understands us. And Hebrews specifically calls Jesus our brother, our spiritual brother. Remember Hulk Hogan, uh, brother. We got to remember that Jesus is our brother, and, and we are spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Hebrews remains on this kind of family theme in, as, in verse 1, Hebrews 3, 1, which begins, therefore, holy brothers. That's the last time. I'm going to stop doing the Hulk Hogan growl. But, but the verse begins, therefore, holy brothers, and I, I just want to take a minute to let that, that blow your mind a little bit. And again, implication in, in the Greek language is that this means holy brothers and sisters, that, that, that because Jesus has redeemed us and, and through his death on the cross and his resurrection has adopted us into God's spiritual family, that we have this spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood with one another and with Christ, and it makes us holy. If you are in Christ, you are holy. That's not a popular thing, especially because people are quick to point out hypocrites, right? We, we have a culture that hates hypocrisy, as we should. But the reality is, is that theologically speaking, if we have trusted in Christ, we are holy. Not holier than thou, not better than anyone else, but we are holy because God has said so. Not because we're perfect. We all still fall and mess up. The, the Greek word for holy is hagios. It's also translated as saint sometimes. That if you are in Christ, if you've repented of sin, trusted in Jesus, you are a saint. When we think of saints, we typically think of like Mother Teresa, and we think we could never be called a saint. But that's exactly what the Bible calls you, a saint. And somehow you're still a loser at the same time, right? You still blow it week after week. You mess up and you sin and you fall and you fail. You're simultaneously a sinner and a saint. And when we think of the family of God, Hebrews is going to use this word to describe it, house. House. Now, most of you all have been of our church for a while know my favorite Hebrew word. It's, it's translated into English as house, but it's the, the Hebrew word bayith, two syllables. But I love it because it just sounds like a redneck that smells bad. He needs to take a bayith. Take a bath. And bath is, is most famously known from the verse where, um, where uh, uh, Joshua speaks to the people. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Me and my bath. That, that what, he, what he means is not just the people that lives in his house. It could also mean household. It could also mean family. Um, more specifically, it means my descendants forever. And, and there's a similar word in Greek that is used in Hebrews chapter 3 that's oikos. And, and it can also mean house, the house that you live in. It can mean your household, all the people that live with you. It could also mean your descendants and your family. And, and I don't want you to miss that as we look later at what it means to be in the house of God. We typically think of that as the building that we gather in. Y'all heard old timers say that? Like, I'm in the house of the Lord every time the doors are open. Well, the house of God, we're going to see, is actually the people of God. And it's a beautiful thing. Let's begin with verse 1. 
It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus, the author says. It means to think about him. Consider and, and wonder if he truly is everything that he claimed to be. Remember the audience that this letter was written to were Hellenistic Jews. This was, um, the, these were Jewish people that existed in a Greek culture and most likely had not grown up anywhere near Israel or Jerusalem. But they knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew how God had revealed himself to their people. And here the author says, consider Jesus. Maybe today you need to consider Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've never really spent any time thinking about who he truly is and what he's truly done for you. Maybe though you're a Christian and you truly do love Jesus, but you've just kind of shifted into cruise control for a little while. You've been on autopilot for a while. You're never really thinking about Christ. In my scripture readings right now, I'm using uh, Crossways app because they have Ray Ortland reading scripture and he's just like the spiritual grandfather to a whole generation and, and when he speaks I just feel like I just want to go fight people like in a good way it just pumps me up you know and but sometimes when I I'll, I'll be in the truck and I'll, I'll be letting Ray Papa Ray read scripture to me and I just start you know getting road rage and I start thinking about all the people that can't drive because that's pretty much the whole population except me and obviously, people from Ohio, you know, like, it's just, it's rough out there. And, and I start focusing on all the things around me, you know, my Ohio plate, Ohio plate, Ohio plate, and getting mad. And then, and then I get like a couple chapters through scripture, and I realize I haven't paid attention at all to what Papa Ray's been reading to me, right? And I, and I realize that I've, I've just kind of been distracted and put it on cruise control. And, and if we're not careful, our entire Christian lives can begin to look that way. Because it's actually a really good thing if it is a default for you to come to church on Sunday, right? It's a default for you to read scripture. It's a default for you to pray before you share a meal with your family. That's a good thing if that's your default. That means you've stepped into healthy habits and rhythms in your Christian walk. But on the other end of the spectrum of neglecting it, it can become routine and meaningless to you. Just something you do week after week, day after day. And so I would call upon you to do what Hebrews 3.1 says. Consider Jesus. To meditate upon him. That when I'm not paying attention to Papa Ray reading scripture to me, I have to rewind the thing and go back and listen to it again because I didn't properly pay attention to the word of God. And specifically, this first verse tells us that we consider Jesus as two things. Number one, the apostle of God, and number two, the high priest of our confession. Let me just explain each of those briefly. The first one, apostle, just literally translated means one who is sent. And so he says, consider Jesus the apostle. We typically think of apostles as, as the 12 disciples that Jesus gathered around him for his earthly ministry, and then he sent in the Great Commission into all the world to tell the good news and baptize converts. Um, that's a good definition of apostles, but here Hebrews takes that title and, and brings us back to the source, meaning that the Father sent the Son to us to, to be sent in the incarnation, to become human, to be born as a baby, to live a perfect life, to die, to save us from our sins. That we consider and remember that Jesus 
came on a rescue mission for us. Second thing he calls him is the high priest. The title of priest, specifically high priest, is, is like a thesis statement for the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of chapters later in the book that we'll get into as we go verse by verse through this book where we will see that Jesus is a perfect high priest for us, meaning that he mediates between us and the Father. Um, some of y'all were with our church when, when we went through the book of Leviticus, and y'all griped and groaned and complained about it the whole time, right? And then, and then during that time, we actually had, had COVID happen and lockdown, and y'all got to go to church in your jammies, and you're still like, oh, we got to do Leviticus. Like, I'm about to go through it again just so we can not be on lockdown through it. But Leviticus, we titled that sermon series, Unfinished Business. And the reason was, is because in Leviticus, the reason you get tired of reading Leviticus is because it's like killing animals and weird laws, and they have to go over and over and over and over again into the tabernacle and the temple to make sacrifices for sins. And it gets monotonous to us as we read it, but the reason that it happens over and over again is because it's meant to remind us that the work was never finished. No lamb, no goat, no, no bull could ever fully atone for the sins of men. They had to do it day after day after day. And it was meant to teach them and thereby us as well that we needed a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus becomes that. He becomes our high priest that not only mediates, but he is also the lamb that dies for us. And so where Leviticus was unfinished business, Hebrews is the finished business of the New Testament, the sequel, if you will, to the book of Leviticus that tells us and communicates that Jesus did away with all of that, fulfilled it perfectly, so now we just hope in him. Yet now many of you live your lives just like the unfinished business of Leviticus. We complain about that weird book of the Bible, but then we live just like it. We have religious routine, we fail at it, and then we repeat the process, rinse and repeat. You know what the secret sauce of Christianity is? It's not getting your routine nailed down perfectly. It's getting the gospel in your heart perfectly. That, that when you don't read your scripture for a day or two, that God's not smiting you in anger. That instead, you, you don't have to work extra hard to catch up. That you remind yourself that there is grace for you because Jesus has already paid for all of your failures. That when you blow it and you sin and you do that thing that you swore you'd never do again, that, that there is still grace for you, unlimited grace and favor in your life. That Christ is enough. That you live a Christocentric, gospel-centered life and you continually consider Jesus. That day after day, you remind yourself of this good news. That your faithful high priest and apostle, Jesus Christ, went to a cross to pay for your sins and rose from the dead. Verse 2 says of this Savior that he was faithful to him who appointed him, which is God the Father, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. And so here Moses is kind of introduced as the analogy at the beginning of this chapter. He's used as an object lesson to the audience of these Hellenistic Jews. It was something they would have been very familiar with and they would have likely revered Moses more than anyone. To these Hellenistic Jews, Moses would have been their goat. He would have been their Tom Brady. I mean, he's just everything. And, and Hebrews begins to make the case, tackle their, their greatest celebrity and say, there's one so much greater than him. But, it, but 
but the author of Hebrews doesn't need to condemn Moses to do so. He doesn't need to highlight all the flaws of Moses. Y'all heard the goat uh, argument, or maybe you, you get in these arguments sometimes. I see some of y'all on Facebook sometimes being mean to people. And, um, and, and you argue about Jordan and LeBron and who the best is. You've seen those? So Jordan's clearly the greatest. Like, most sane people know that. But, but when you try to argue for Jordan be the greatest, you're right. But when you argue for it by saying LeBron sucks, it's a stupid argument. Because LeBron's not terrible. Like, I know he flops, and I know he walks all the time, and I, I get all that, okay? But, but, but if your way of showing that Jordan is the greatest is just showing how bad LeBron is, it's a weak argument because LeBron's not bad at basketball. He can mop the floor with all of us, right? And, and here the same, like, we might expect the author to say, well, Moses failed in this way, and this way, and this way, and this is why Moses is not the greatest of all time. Let me introduce you to Jesus. But instead, Jesus doesn't need to put anyone down to make himself supreme, The author shows us that Moses is indeed great and should be honored and respected. But the author will also prove that Jesus is greater. Verse 3 continues, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now here, the author introduces this idea of oikos, or in Hebrew, bayith, this family of God. And and we translate it in English as house, because that's what it means, but it doesn't just mean a building. Um, It can mean a, a building and a family, and I think that's what the author has in mind. And he creates this analogy that, that Moses serves in this house, but that Jesus is the builder of this house. Imagine you have an opportunity to, to meet your favorite musician of all time. Um, you're, you're enamored with their music. You've, you've had every album, and you get an opportunity to meet them. But you say, well, why would I need to meet them? I already have their music. I have their CD. I don't need to meet them. I have their music. There's only like a couple of people that would do that. One of them's Jeremy Berry. He'd be like, I don't, I don't know why I need to meet this person. I got their music. That's all I want from them. I don't need to have a conversation with them. He's so introverted. He'd just be like, I'll just... Listen to the CD again. He also still listens to CDs. Um, but most, most of us would take the opportunity to honor the creator of the music, right? We would, we would probably even want to thank them for making good music. And the argument similar here in the book of Hebrews is that, is that we, can, we can appreciate and respect the house that's been built, but how much more honor should we give to the builder of the house, Right? And the argument here is, is really showing the deity of Christ, that Jesus is the creator and founder of all things, and he is worthy of more glory than anyone, even Moses. That as the designer and as the creator of the family of God, everything points us to him. He's the creator of the cosmos, and he's the creator of the church. Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is God, and Jesus built all of these things for us. Later in Hebrews 11, speaking of Abraham, it even tells us that this forefather of our faith, um, in Hebrews 11.10, it says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So practically speaking, that means that we don't give more glory to the family of God or the house than we do the builder of God, or the builder of the house, which is God. There are three, three primary ways that I see people do this. They, they bring more glory to the house than they do the builder in the church. And they all start with L. You're welcome. Uh, 
Number one is legalism. Number two is loyalism. And number three is liberalism. Legalism is when we love religion more than God. We love going to church more than we love God himself. We love the, the country clubness that can uh, creep into our social gathering that we call church more than we actually love God himself. This plays out when we love being religious in front of people, but at home we don't actually love God's word or spend time in communion with him. Loyalism is loving the church more than God. Maybe not the religious activity, but the church itself. Personally, I think New Heights is most susceptible to this because we have an awesome church. We just do. I tell people all the time, it's my favorite church. I'm biased, right? But we begin to love our church more than we love God himself. And, and what happens is we begin to look down at other gatherings of the people of God and feel like they're wrong and not doing it well enough. And the third way that we uh, honor the, the house more than the builder is by liberalism. And I don't mean political liberalism. That's a whole other conversation. But what I mean is religious liberalism, meaning that we love our freedom more than we love the God who has given us that freedom. The ancient heresy was called antinomianism, where we disregard the morality of God. We do whatever we want because God has set us free. And because God has saved us, we're free to do as we please. All of these things honor what God has done and fail to honor God. And we, because there's still some honor in the formula, we trick ourselves into thinking that it's okay. And it's not. The reality is, is Hebrews is calling us to a deep relationship with Jesus personally. We have to love him even when no one's around or watching. Secondly, let's look at Moses' role in the family or in the house of God. So what about people like Moses? Shouldn't we honor and revere men and women of exceptional faithfulness? Of course we should. There are biblical people. There, there are people in the Bible like Moses, David, Paul, Peter. We, we have to remember they're not sinless, right? They're, they're not the heroes of the story. Um, we see Paul and Peter, for example, very clearly sinning. Moses, David, very, very clearly sinning. But we can honor those people. Other, others like historical people we can honor. Guys like the church fathers, like Augustine, or the reformer Martin Luther, or the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon, or many of you may know of the ministry of Billy Graham. We can honor modern people like the recently passed Tim Keller, or a, a guy that, that a couple of us are going to see in April in Dallas, John Piper, who's had a tremendous impact on so many ministries. We can honor all of those people, and, and I believe we should. And the reality is, is talented and honorable men, they can, they can actually even make decent celebrities, but they make poor saviors. And they should never be elevated so highly that they become savior. And for these Hellenistic Jews, many of them had probably elevated Moses and their religious uh, gatherings to this point. Now again, this isn't to Moses' detriment, but but the author of Hebrews is going to show how Jesus is greater by actually building up Moses in verse 5. It says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So he testifies that Moses was faithful. He obeyed the Lord. He was used by the Lord. He's described in verse 5 as a servant. The most common word for servant was doulos, which could also be translated as a slave. And I find it interesting that, that the author doesn't use the word slave to describe Moses. 
That was the most common word that would have been used in the Greek language. And he doesn't say slave. Instead, he uses the Greek word that means royalty. Therapon means a, a servant of royalty who was in a position of honor and of service. It's the only time in Scripture that this word is used, and it's interesting that he uses it here. And I think the reason is because the author of Hebrews did not want to bring Moses down. He didn't want them to confuse what he was trying to communicate. You see, Moses had done great things. He delivered God's morality, the law itself, the Ten Commandments to the people. He stands with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? When Jesus reveals his glory. Let me just read it to you. Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So here you, you see how Moses is, is elevated and honored in a good way. He's an incredibly important person in the family of God. Moses spoke directly to God. We see this in Numbers 12. God says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, or I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. Bayeth. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. That's high praise. Moses had an unparalleled access to God. He saw God with his eyes. He spoke to God with his lips. But even with all of that, Moses could not save a single person, not even himself. And be careful lest you begin to ascribe to people what only belongs to God. Never look to me or any other pastor to be your priest. I am not your priest. I never will be your priest. Jesus is your priest. He fulfilled that office fully and finally. And we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. No one can be great enough to save you except Jesus. Al Mohler says this in his commentary about this passage. He says, Moses was a man. Christ is the God-man. Moses was a sinner judged for his sin. Sinless Christ is judged for the sins of his people. Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood. Christ changes water into wine. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage to Egypt, but failed to lead them into the land of promise. Christ, though, the second Moses, leads his people out of bondage to sin and takes them all the way into the eschatological land of promise. So do you see what the author of Hebrews is trying to show us? Jesus is greater than even the goat. The goat of Judaism had no chance to stand up against the glory of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 5 again. What was Moses' purpose? He was faithful in all God's house as a servant. To what? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. This is where the scripture just begins to blow my mind. His purpose was to testify of things coming later. This is a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Moses' role in God's family is to prepare the way for the gospel, the good news. The law that he delivered to humanity shows us our need for good news. The law actually was the bad news. Moses didn't deliver the good news. He delivered the bad news. He was bad cop in this whole equation. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That Moses delivered the law which showed us that we needed a Savior. 
And, and, and Hebrews shows us how to interpret Scripture with a Christocentric lens. Uh, other books of the Bible do this too, by the way. It's not just Hebrews. In the book of Acts, Peter does this. Peter takes a verse out of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18.15, namely, where Moses actually speaks of, of Jesus, the Messiah, coming under the inspiration of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3 is, is Peter's sermon, and he quotes Moses. He says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That's Jesus, by the way. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So Moses, along with every other Old Testament prophet, we learn were all leading us to the climax of history, which is Jesus Christ. And so where does that leave us? Point three, your role in the family. What about you? Again, most of y'all probably didn't come in here with like a Moses complex, like you're obsessed with Moses or anything. Okay, so I, I know that this probably isn't something that you're, you know, you're in danger of idolizing Moses, but I think when we see Moses, we're reminded of just how he testified of things to come. Our call as New Testament, New Covenant believers is to testify of things that came, that Jesus lived a sinless life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead to save sinners. We proclaim that message. We carry on that faith. Verse 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. You notice the, the, the contrast there. Moses is a royal servant, but Christ is a son. Jesus is not merely a man. He is God become man. Moses was a servant in God's house. Jesus is a son in God's house. And what this means for us in the new covenant is absolutely mind-blowing because it means first we are spiritual brothers through Christ, through adoption. That brothers and sisters, we get to call Jesus our big brother. And secondly, and this is where it should just lead us to worship, we are called his house. Verse 6 says, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You remember what Moses had to worship in? Like a big circus tent, basically, with a lot of gold in it. He built the tabernacle by God's instruction. They rolled it up and packed it up and carried it through the wilderness for 40 years. Solomon, who, who came much later, built the temple by God's command. The temple was a place where these Levitical sacrifices would be carried out. And all the religion of the Old Testament was carried out. It was destroyed and the people were taken into exile. God freed them. We see in, in the prophet Jeremiah. And they go back and they rebuild the temple. We see in Jesus' day, the temple is rebuilt. And those sacrifices are resumed and taking place. But now in this new covenant, the temple has been destroyed in AD 70. And the Bible calls us the house of God. Not this building, not this place. This people we are called the house of God. Peter explains it like this. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sac sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so God has chosen to dwell with his people. And I want you to take this home with you today because God will go home with you today. You, you, you see that? You believe that? You don't come here to find God. You come here to gather with God's people to worship God. God will go home with you today. 
Believe it or not, New Heights has been called a cult before. Can y'all believe that? Don't tell them about our Kool-Aid, okay? But I've heard people call us a cult and all that. But we don't have a commune. Like, we're not that crazy. Imagine, some of y'all are weird, and you'd be like, yeah, a commune would be great. I don't want to live with y'all. That's just the reality of it, okay? I want to go home to my own family and not have to deal with you guys and turn my phone off. Like, I love you, but sometimes I'm just like, I want to go away. But imagine if, 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 if we had to live with each other. Again, there's like two or three of y'all would be like, that'd be great. It, w- it would be terrible. It just would be. <laughs> because living together represents the closest relationship people can have. Like you can be cold roommates, but you're not going to be strangers with people that you live with. We don't all live together. The reality is, is because we're not that close. We might be close as church family, but we ain't living together. But yet God just willingly lives with you. Underwear on the floor and toothpaste coming out of the middle of the tube and all the weird habits you have at your house. God, God describes his relationship with you as a dwelling with you. I, I just want that to like rest on you for a minute. You gotta, you gotta feel the weight of that. That God in his perfection has chosen to live with sinful you. It's powerful. It's profound. Look at verse 6 again. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. And then there's this phrase that comes, if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This might be like the buzzkill of the passage. Like, man, God lives with me. That's pretty good. If, what do you mean if? I mean, I got to keep it all together. Will, you just told me that, that even when I fail, the gospel's good news and Jesus has already forgiven everything. Listen, there are two truths in the Bible that are simultaneously true. And when we look at them both at the same time, we look at them with human eyes and we think they can't coexist. But they do. Scripture makes both of these things very true, very clear. The first truth is that only those who persevere will be saved. Only those who remain in the faith, continue in their walk with God, will be saved ultimately. But the second truth is that all who have genuine faith will persevere. Now how those things continue to both be true in Scripture, I can't adequately explain that other than the fact that I rely on God himself to work that out. And it, is good, and it doesn't demand perfection. It doesn't demand that we ne- never miss church. It doesn't demand that we do everything right. But it demands that our belief remains in Christ. That we don't deny who God truly is. And the Bible makes it clear that those who are really in the faith won't do that. Romans 8.38 says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So hear me very clearly when I tell you the Bible makes it clear. We will not lose our salvation. If you stand in Christ, he holds you. You don't hold yourself. So why then does the Bible have this strong call to persevere? Because you're supposed to, to honor the Lord who saved you. And the fact that some don't persevere doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It means that they may have never really genuinely understood the gospel 
and trusted in it. First John 2.19 says, Of these people, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. You see, this is where when Jesus tells us that it is not our place to judge, this is where we don't judge. We leave this to the Lord. And the beautiful invitation of Scripture is that you are of this spiritual bayith, this, this oikos, this family of God, and you are here today to recognize that. And the Bible gives us a ceremony of a meal to do that. Just like in a family, in your household, you may share meals together at a table. We have tables that hold for us the sacrifice of Jesus, reminding us that we don't have to slaughter a lamb today, that we have the finished work of our big brother, Jesus Christ, to hold us in the family of God. So we have on these tables up front and on the sides, the body of Jesus represented in bread and the blood of Jesus represented in grape juice to remind us of this great salvation. So would you examine yourself? Would you bow your head and pray as I lead us in prayer as we prepare to, to take this ceremonial family meal that, that alludes to and reminds us of and makes us excited for an everlasting and eternal meal with Christ one day. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.